I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The amazing move in chips this week. Another name surges today as well. We debate where that trade goes from here with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour on this Friday, Rob Seach and Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal. want to show you what the markets are doing. Do have a big day shaping up four stocks on this Friday before the holiday weekend. Dow's on track to break its five-day losing streak. We are focusing on this incredible move in chips this week, and it really, guys, Jenny, it's far, it's far beyond NVIDIA, even though that's sucking all the action out of the room. Marvell is up 38% this week, AMD 18, Broadcom 12, Taiwan Semi up 12, and sort of on and on uh, down the list. I'm wondering how how you view this trade in the the here and now. And we can talk about sort of how you're specifically positioned, because I think that leads to another layer of this conversation. Right. So it's obviously incredibly frustrating. As someone who really focuses on free cash flow, on that kind of leans towards value, it's frustrating because I feel like we're kind of back to the bad old days where the divergence overall is extraordinary. You know this better than anyone, but I saw a chart this morning that showed you know, the top few stocks in the S&P are up 44 percent. S&P is up 10 percent. The rest of the stocks are up 1 percent. Well, I mean, if you want to go there, let's just say okay. I mean, Bespoke had a great chart talking about the three-month performance spread between the S&P 500 and the equal weight S&P mm-hmm. is the widest it's been since December of 99. Right, which Making is your wild, point. wild. And so you know me, I get scared by crowded trades. I put up a tweet back in, I think it was February 2021, where I looked at the growth in ARC and I'm like, whoa, that screams crowded trade to me. This screams crowded trade to me as much as it did then, and it scares the bejesus out of me. So I look at this and I'm like, boy, am I an idiot for not owning NVIDIA? You know, or am I doing what I'm hired to do? And I think, I think I've come out saying like, okay, but if I did own Nvidia, I'd own a different, I'd be a different kind of manager. I'd own a different strategy. And if you were comfortable owning that at 50 times, then you're also owning comfortable owning things like Tesla, Zoom, Coinbase, Teladoc, Roku, which are all down significantly. Aren't so- they? Don't they each have the? I feel that's like too generalizing. I mean. They, they can have their idiosyncratic or different stories just because the value, just because you have the same valuation, just because NVIDIA has the same valuation as another name, but not the same fundamental story, they can't be viewed the same as an investor, no matter, but here's the no thing, matter how you look at it. It's what style portfolio you manage, right? So the style portfolio I manage for our discipline growth in particular says, okay, we need a free cash flow yield of 5% to get into this portfolio. So while I might have missed NVIDIA, I also missed those. You know, what I get is, I know we're going there, like, I get an Intel, but I also get a Meta, a Uber, an XPO, a Palo Alto, a United Rentals. And so they kind of, in the long run, I think, net out to both have excellent performance. Okay, well, so we, really, we, sorry. We need, to, we need to debate that, Jim, mm-hmm. um, before I get to Rob. I think the central question after this week is, is it a have versus have not market, okay? In terms of how you're positioning in the stocks that you own, versus the ones that you don't. And we can look at it through the lens of the chips, Mm -hmm. right? NXPI and Qualcomm are are how you're playing the chips, okay? This week, not a terrible week. They're up 2.5% and 2% respectively. That's fine. Not when you compare it, though, to what I said of Marvell, NVIDIA, AMD, Broadcom, Taiwan Semi, Cadence, KLA, and on and on and on. I mean, at, at what point do you worry about, I have not, and yes. I need to get with the haves. Yeah. 
So, uh, good, good question. And by the way, we can extend. I'm going to stay on the microscopic topic of the chips, but it does uh, represent uh, the overall market and the divergence between the equal weight, say, and, and the NASDAQ. Here's the thing. That, that divergence can, restri- uh, excuse me, can resolve itself in one of two ways. Either the big names can come down. I don't think that's going to happen. There's too much operational power at the NVIDIAs and Marvells of the world. Or the laggards can come up. And I do think the laggards are going to come up. Now, let's describe what the laggards are. Something like Qualcomm, smartphones. Something like NXP, uh, NXPI is automotive. Something like Intel, Jenny, is more the uh, overall general compute, laptops and desktop computers, that sort of thing. Why would those names come back? They would come back if economic activity overall is much stronger than people expect. This is the debate we've had all year, Scott. And I don't know if you remember last week I said, hey, we started out the year we we're going to have a crash landing. Then we went to no landing. Then we went back to crash landing. Guess what we're headed for again now? No landing. Look at these macroeconomic numbers today. Durable goods numbers shot the lights out. Uh, You know, we still see strong labor market. I mean, there's a pretty good indication that we're going back to the no landing uh, camp, which will promote those have not stocks over the rest of this year. Although, I mean, the other question is, if if you think money's going to come in there, where's it going to come from? The chances of you getting a rotation out of AI-centric names, I think, is slim. You have to be relying on fresh money, fresh money that might not be in the market uh, coming in. This is very interesting. I'm going to need Jenny's help on this. We know that uh, NVIDIA's market cap right now is what, uh, a trillion dollars, right? Off the top of your head, Intel is what? And I'm not going to promote Intel, but what is the market cap? A hundred billion? I don't know. Okay, so just just think about this for a second. Like, you could take 2% of the market cap of NVIDIA, and Scott, that could just be people selling because they've got great profits and they want to lock in. NVIDIA is now overweight in a lot of of portfolios that have held it for quite some time. That 2% out of NVIDIA would be 20% of Intel's market cap. It's $118 billion. Okay, I was in in the ballpark. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, the, the small amount of flows out of the winners can make a huge huge difference to the the ones that have lagged. It's just you have to give people a reason, Rob Seachin, to sell out of the winners and and maybe take bigger risk in some of those other names. You, however, um, don't have a similar quote unquote problem. If you want to use that word, you do own Broadcom. It's up 12 percent this week, 23 percent this month. You do own Cadence. You do own KLA. You do own AMAT. You do own LAM. They are among the best of the month-to-date winners out of, out of the chip space. But how do you view this in what might be determined to be a watershed week? I, I think it is. Our semiconductor exposure is significantly overweight, as you outlined there. We just added to it. We added Broadcom as our final trade on the show on April 28th. And it's up 25 since. And our key takeaway from the NVIDIA report is that we are officially in an arms race for AI in kind of an instead of joining that arms race and buying the arms dealers, we are owning the, the, the pick and shovel company. So they, they are the arms dealers rather. They're continuing to sell to those businesses. And you know, basically they're capital light. We've avoided the capital heavy and commoditized parts of that market, and we haven't been willing to pay up for the the innovators like NVIDIA because it doesn't fit our pricing model. I think we think a lot like, like Jenny does in that regard. So you look at an Intel though, and they're spending 43% of every dollar they have back in R&D. That's a highly inefficient business. So these capital light names make a lot of sense, and we're going to continue to be picking shovel sellers. Now, 
on the topic of technology being disconnected from the, the market, it's not just disconnected from the stock market, Scott. It's disconnected from the bond market. Um, we've had a long period of time where tech names, especially large cap tech names, have traded in lockstep with real yields. Um, that has broken. That is likely due to something related to this AI uh, revolution that we're seeing, that we're participating in in a very defensive way. You know, let, let but me the ask reality you of it is, it too could be because of liquidity. Let me ask and, you this about, you know, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm gonna interrupt you, I'm gonna interrupt you for a minute and I apologize, yeah, go but ahead. I'm gonna anyway. Because um, I wanna talk about valuation, okay? And how different investors view valuation differently. Now, I remember Kathy Wood, who did not participate in any of this NVIDIA move since the beginning of the year because she closed out her position in January. And it was on this very network in which she said it was the valuation that was the reason why, that it was too rich, it was too expensive. Well, lo and behold, here we are. And the stock has had a tremendous run since then. And the day after earnings, it was actually cheaper from a PE perspective than it was going in because of the projected earnings and the guidance that the company just blew everybody out of the water with. My point is at what point do you as the investor say, you know what, the way I used to look at valuation may not be the way that I need to look at valuation from here. And I've so thoroughly underestimated the power and the transformative capabilities of AI and these stocks that are playing with that. And maybe I need to rethink this. Well, I think you bring up a really good point. And I'm surprised that it was Kathy Wood that said that. I'm, I'm surprised about that. But what I will tell you is the ease have been exploding. So you pointed out NVIDIA, now cheaper today than after earnings. I think that we see NVIDIA as a major beneficiary. The story is yet to be told on some of these other companies on what the benefits of AI are gonna be for them from an earnings perspective. Is that ultimately gonna be a tailwind or is that ultimately be gonna be a headwind? Right now, we're left to think about just the story and what the possibilities are. And I'm gonna take you back in time, Scott, to 1997, 1998, where there was another thing happening, another transformative technology, where we got disconnected by, from price, where all you had to do was put .com on the end of your name, toys.com, pets.com. And guess what? Valuation can remain extended for a while because of the enthusiasm behind a story. Where it matters is ultimately as that story starts to play out, what are the long-term implications on earnings? We're fundamentalists. We're gonna buy things that are at a reasonable price right now that are likely to be beneficiaries, but we recognize we might miss some of these story stocks that might not ultimately benefit from a change in their earnings trajectory okay. because we don't know how they're gonna use AI yet. All right, all right, so you were shaking your head, Jenny, when I was posing this question about you know, the way that you look at valuation, you know, for your career versus what's going on in the market. Now, you run a very, you know, you run a, um, a tight strategy. A tight strategy. You have to look at things the way you look at things based on the strategy that you run. Jim's a different story because Jim has the freedom to do really whatever the heck he wants, you know, irrespective of how he considers himself to be as, as an investor. But you first. So 
So when you think about the fact that it's not just one stock, like you can miss out on one stock on the upside and still have an excellent portfolio. You hopefully miss out on one stock on the downside and still have an excellent portfolio. But when I think about you asking like, do you need to change your valuation structure to accommodate something like NVIDIA, we need to remember this is really, this is one company and I thought it was so interesting when it was up so much the other day and led the NASDAQ so much higher, you've got the Dow that was down a lot. And you need to remember like how how niche I think, and you might argue with me, but like how niche this is in the broader context of the entire market. So I'm thinking of it and I'm thinking, wow, when you advertise that there is that much money to be made in a space, everyone's coming for you. And guess what? Microsoft is making AI chips now. Amazon's making AI chips. Even IBM is making AI chips. Intel's trying to enter the game more. AMD is entering the game and they have the capabilities to. So I think that we really need to consider that over the long run, there is going to be significant competition. And I think while one's valuation structure might adjust over time, you must employ consistent discipline. Otherwise, you find yourself chasing things at the top and selling them at the wrong places at the bottom. See, now I, I bring up, Jimmy, again, what I read yesterday from somebody that I follow, and I think you know many people do um, in you know the finance Twitter world, uh, Mark Dow, who, who said, Waiting for the quote-unquote right valuations leaves people behind at the bottom of every cycle. And the market never gives them the valuations they need to get back in. I've seen it time and time again, he said. Valuation is where supply meets demand. It's not a number preordained by history. Okay. So here's how I'm looking at NVIDIA. And you'll remember, uh, Scott, and I said this again. any of these names. It's yeah, not just no, it's but, NVIDIA, but it's, it's Marvell, it's, it's AMD, it's Broadcom. I got you. It's where the action is. I got you. It's, it's easy just to specify NVIDIA. You understand Fair. why, right? Fair. So the, there's a couple of questions that go into this equation, right? First off, is 55 times forward earnings right? I actually don't think so. I think you're going to see earnings continue to go up and that that E, this is what Brad Gerstner was saying the other day on the show, right? That the E is probably understated right now. Let's say it is. And let's say the multiple is 35 times. Okay, that's where the pricing discipline comes in because 35 times for me as a traditional semiconductor investor is expensive. But however, I will eventually invest in this. I will find my spot in NVIDIA. I do feel I have to own it. It's it's just too much a part of the market. But here's the real important thing, and I think Jenny will agree with me, even though she's got very stringent rules. What it comes down to is risk management. How much of NVIDIA do you own? if you're going to buy it. I would not get large in this stock right away. This is a stock that I will look to build over time. And Scott, I know sometimes I say to you, oh, this position is small. And you say, it doesn't matter. You're in the stock. Actually, it really does matter to me as a portfolio manager. Position sizing is going to matter. I, I expect this that, is, but when you I expect can, it's going to be but, big, but I got to get in there. I got to get in there slowly over time. I hear time. you, but you've made, I guess part of my point is like you've made, you've, you've managed to make exceptions at times yeah. over your your pure discipline in a Roku or whatever name that you've had over the years with a, for you, a very high and somewhat uncomfortable valuation. Yeah. Are you thinking about NVIDIA, some of these other names, you know, okay, well, I've done it in the past with such and such. If I don't do it now, I'm going to miss out. It's it's very uncomfortable to be in the position that I'm in. And you know my position and the viewers do too, sure. right? I pay a lot of attention to valuation. And I'm in stocks where, frankly, I see the operational results are doing fabulously and the stocks are getting cheaper. That's very uncomfortable. What I'm suggesting with regards to NVIDIA is not a wholesale throwing in the towel. It is simply that this is where money is going to be made in terms of a share price going higher over the years, plural, years 
quarters to come. What that means, and I'm sorry I'm focused on this, this position size, but it really matters. It means the first step, that toe in the pool is always the hardest, and then you gradually get in. It's going to take me time, Scott, and during that time, I think the valuation is going to look more appealing as the earnings are shown to be higher. Let's bring in um, one of our committee members who's joined us on the phone today. Um, it's Bill Baruch uh, is here because Marvell uh, is just straight up marvelous uh, today, Bill. <laughs> New 52-week high. It actually, you, you wouldn't know it, frankly, because NVIDIA, has, as I said, has stolen the thunder this week. But Marvell's actually had a better week. Marvell's up 38% week to date. You own that stock. You own NVIDIA, too. But how do you assess this trade from the here and now and whether you're tempted to take profits, you think it's overextended, you think it's just getting started? These are the kinds of questions that all of our viewers and anybody who has any of these stocks are thinking about today. Yeah, you're right. We, we own these names, and it's something that we're discussing right now, um, how to manage this. I've been on the show over the couple times over the last month, the last couple months. NVIDIA, at some points, has been our largest position, and we're managing that position. We've rotated into some of the other semis, but we're, we have high conviction uh, in the semi space. It's been like that for a while. In fact, 23% of our equity bucket is semis. 47% of our equity bucket has been tech. Um, for Marvell in particular, the quarter itself wasn't phenomenal. It's really looking out, and this is the same story that we've seen from a lot of these companies reporting, is looking out to the second half of this year, and that's where the positivity is. And so we're getting this, the, you know, Jensen Huang said from NVIDIA earlier in the week that this is the start of a 10-year cycle. So I, I look back at a quote that's been attributed to Bill Gates and some others that we tend to overestimate change in the short term and underestimate uh, change in the long term. And that tells me that I think last week I said I was, we're in the middle innings of this price wave higher. But I think long term, I mean, there's some big changes taking place, but it's not just AI. Marvell themselves, they didn't participate in the 4G rollout at all, but they they are they have their hands in the 5G very well uh, in Europe with Ericsson and Nokia. Yeah, and really, people moving away from Huawei uh, is Marvell's been taking uh, taking advantage of that. But still, twenty seven percent or thirty sorry thirty seven percent of their income comes from China too. So it's a well positioned name. Do you do you care, and to what degree do you care, if any, about this divergence that we've we've seen the great divergence, right, of the performance of the top heavy stocks and then seemingly everything else and whether you think well, that's a, a broad market negative or or if you see it differently yeah that's a great question i care a lot about it because we're positioned for it and that's why it really matters and yeah i i think there's there's going to be some change in portfolios i think managers that that don't have this that they're they're working through that as everybody's discussing at the desk is you know where do we where do we put capital now? Do we do we chase some of this move? Do we do we look for specific valuations to to get exposure here? I I think that again I reiterate it's a ten, beginning of a ten year cycle. The Nvidia CEO said, and I think that's something to really take here. That I think money is going to have to rotate from some of the cyclical names uh, and and start to move. I mean, why was Intel down seven percent uh, the day day after Nvidia reported? Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's you know, there's a lot to take here, and I think when we look at it, and what really convinced us is is last year, the the haves and have-nots, the companies that really lowered those expectations. So these names are really coming out of these lower expectations, uh, and and that's going to that's been the tailwind because now as the focus shifts to profitability and 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 revenue actually picking back up in, in 2024, a lot of these names have their fiscal year of 2024 in the second half of 2023. So that's really what they're talking about. And that supply got really starting to dissipate 
But, you know, names like NVIDIA that have a foothold in the space, the software suite that they offer is, is, is there's, there's not a second place and there's not a third place. It's NVIDIA. And that's it. And so there's you find the niches within the within the space. There's going to be tailwinds. I mean, even back to Marvell, they connect data centers. The more dependence we have on data centers is, is going to be a tailwind to Marvell in the future as well. So having diverse revenue streams within these spaces, to, within these companies, too, is, is, is also going to be important. Rob Seachin, I mean, if you're looking for you know how long this tech strength can last. Mark Newton of Fundstrat, the technician there, says it can last longer than many have patience for. That's part of his note today where he suggests that he's expecting the S&P 500 to get back above 4,200 as it's approaching yet again within, you know, a few points today. And we'll see what we do over the next few hours on this Friday. But, you know, for those who are who are looking or questioning whether this can really last longer, he, in fact, thinks it, it can. What about you? I mean, it always can. There's a lot of enthusiasm around this this narrative right now. It's actually taken over the Fed narrative, um, which is really surprising because we have all this strong economic data, which is going to keep the Fed engaged. You have huge dissent within the Fed, but they're going to continue to be engaged. I think I think that story is yet to be written. You've got the debt ceiling that we've got to get through. You've got weak technicals that the market's telling us every day. We have weak breadth. We have weak momentum. Not in tech. Again, that one strong runner could push us through the finish line and carry us all there. You have intermarket defensive leadership at times. Um, you know, I think you got to be careful. There's a lot of trends that have deteriorated in energy and materials and financials and small caps. And so can we break through? Sure, you can. What would cause growth to stumble? Rising yields starting to matter again. Real yields were very important from 2018 to 22. They're not anymore. We're now at 148, 10-year uh, real yield. The last time we were here, growth stocks traded at 22 times. Liquidity is going to tighten post-debt ceiling. You get any earnings disappointments out of these names, I think you're, you're going to be vulnerable to sentiment uh, cooling eventually. But I'm not going to be the one that doesn't acknowledge the strength that we're seeing on this story and the possibilities. I mean, I think we're all amazed with what is happening in AI. The question is, what are the ultimate benefits? And that's why I said it reminds me of 97, where you can have this melt up in this space. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, fundamentals are going to matter again. And we as investors have to pay attention to that. Okay. So I would encourage your audience to look for what are the cheaper, less expensive ways to play this? What are the margin of safety ways to play this? And they'll be fine. All right. Good stuff. Hey, Bill Baruch, thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the other side of the, this you. holiday weekend. We're going to take a quick break. Up next, we have a major trade alert as well today. More actionable stuff for you. Stephanie Link, well, she's selling two key names. Surprised, perhaps, you might be when you hear what they are. She'll tell you next. Well, we've been chasing S&P 4200, and we were sitting there a moment ago, and we're right there within a half point, as you see. So we're going to keep our eyes peeled uh, to the S&P on this holiday Friday, see if we, in fact, can get a close above that. Uh, we'll chart that over the next couple of hours of the trade today. Technology having a good day. Dow's breaking its five-day uh, losing streak as well. 
We do have a trade alert now. Stephanie Link is making some very interesting moves in her <laughs> portfolio. Joins us on the phone. I mean, Steph, you're selling Disney. Yeah. You're selling Disney. <laughs> what happened? Well, look, I mean, I think after the quarter, which, which I expected, I didn't expect a lot from it. It was actually worse than I expected. Um, the media numbers were really atrocious. Add total revenues down 2% in cable, down 17% in broadcasting. They lost U.S. US subs for the first time uh, sequentially. And the guide was really very disappointing. Domestic park margins are going to be weak. Margins are down in linear. And then they're also seeing higher marketing costs. So all of the outperformance in the, the prior quarter is actually going to reverse over the next two quarters. And I think as a result, I think the stock is just dead money. I don't see a lot of downside from here, but I just think it's going to take a lot longer than I expected to see changes. In addition, they cut. we know they're cutting costs of about $5.5 billion. Well, they're going to actually cut content costs, which was a real surprise. And they're at the same time increasing pricing. So that's not going to help the sub numbers anytime soon. And then all of a sudden it seems like they're having a, sh a strategy shift in Hulu, uh, and they mount, might, may now buy the 33% from NBC, which I'm not a fan of. And then last but not least, China, the COVID issues, we, we just don't know how bad it's going to be. And that was the one saving grace for them in the parks and the recovery there. And so I just think adding it all up, again, it's, it's dead money. Wow. Wow. Okay. So stay with me for a second, because I have Farmer Jim here who owns Disney as well. Well, you hear someone like Stephanie Link call it dead money. That resonates. Does yeah, it resonate yeah. with you? Um, it, it does. Now, let me let me fully flesh this out for you. I think it could be dead money until the next quarter. But I do think that that quarter, as terrible as it was, was one quarter in a multi-quarter turnaround that Bob Iger's doing. And I think it's going to show results pretty quickly. And, and Steph, I mean, your points are very well made. Uh, one thing that I actually take a lot of comfort from was the fact that they did raise prices last quarter uh, on Disney+. Plus. They raised it considerably, like 20%. And yes, subs were down, but they were down marginally. So, so basically flat as they raised uh, subs 20%. You know, Netflix a year or so ago had some, some bad sub number quarters uh, in a row. And I, ultimately what I'm saying here is this feels like the turnaround is in place, but it's early. So Steph might be but, right. But this feels like, I mean, the turnaround is, has been laid out. Mm -hmm. It feels like longer than a one quarter turnaround story. Does it not? I, I, to, well, here's how I'd phrase it. It feels to me like last quarter, which was undeniably bad, okay, was a quarter in a turnaround that's going to take the rest of this year. And if you start showing some progress on the next quarter, yeah, it could be dead. It's probably dead money until the next earnings report. But I don't think with this brand and the ultimate value of everything, the studios, the theme parks, Disney Plus, mm -hmm. I, I, this to me doesn't seem like the right price to sell it at. Jenny, you, you own it too. Yeah. And when Steph talks, I listen. Mm -hmm. So it definitely makes you like really go back and reassess your thesis. Um, but one place that I differ with Steph is we do think China reopening could still be a tailwind. Um, we also think that something that's not properly discounted, what we see is like analysts are really great at um, discounting future growth, right? But what they don't necessarily discount is, is um, the future earnings growth driven by cost cutting. So that's really what we saw with Meta, right? Where they weren't, last year, they weren't accounting for the fact that if they just cost cut, it could really drive earnings. We think that if Disney cuts $3 billion from costs, that drives earnings by 30%. 
And then because we're so long-term focused, we think, okay, next year, 2025, they should be at $5.36. Mm-hmm. If they get back to pre-pandemic $7, you put a 20 times multiple on that, that's $140 stock. And so even if it takes me three or four years to get there, the Kager on that return is worth waiting for. Okay, Steph? Well, um, I think that that Jim makes good points. Um, I uh, especially um, on the uh, on the cost side of things. Same, same with Jenny. On the cost side of things, there's definitely some um, some offsetting to the top line being weak. But I I just don't want to wait three years for this thing to work mm-hmm. itself out. And in the same time, it's a very competitive landscape. And I think that everybody in this space. Um, in you know OTT space is really suffering, and so I just I don't want to be in that area. I don't I want I don't want to own any of the names at this point, um, and I just think 23 times forward for waiting for the, for the turn is expensive, and I have other places to put the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to sort of underscore what it means, the heft of someone like Steph saying this is a willingness to wait a long time for GE, a willingness to wait a long time for IBM. No more patience to wait right. for a stock like Disney. Now, the other thing, Steph, is you're selling Wynn Resorts. Now, China must be part of that as well. No, based on what you just said about Disney? Yeah, I mean, this one's a little bit easier, Scott. I'm up 60% from where I bought it, right? And so I'm just taking some profits. I do think that this, this company is, is doing a great job, and I think there's a viable path to, for them to get back to $1.4 billion in EBITDA and margins back to 30%, pre, which is where they were pre-COVID. But, yeah, I, I do worry a little bit about China and, and the COVID and its spreading, and we just don't know. Um, so I'm not giving up 100% on China and the reopening, but I am a little bit more cautious, and I think it's just prudent given that I'm up so much to take to take the gains. Jim, how do you want to deal with this? This is I, another one you own. Yeah, I very, very strongly endorse this stock. I really love this stock. I love Stephanie, too. I do, and she knows it. Um, the quarter that they announced two weeks ago was unfrickin' believable. I mean, it was unbelievable. Now, Stephanie, and I don't know if I have time to ask you this question. You I'll have, just lay go it ahead. out there. Just ask. Like, how much of your decision was, hey, wait a second, that quarter, like, you couldn't have even imagined that quarter, and yet the stock went down. And this is legit, and I, you know, I love you, but how much of this decision was like, come on, the stock's down after that. I need no, to sell I it. No, I mean, I think they hit it out of the park, too. I thought it was a phenomenal quarter. I wasn't happy with the way it acted at all, but I, I just think, yeah, Jim, I think that they're hitting on all cylinders, and how much better does it get from here? Maybe a little bit. As I said, I think they can get back to $1.4 billion in EBITDA, which was pre-COVID, but I, I just think that I've made a lot of money in this thing, and we know it's very volatile, and if there's any bad news coming out of China, the stock's going to be down 20% in our face. So I'd rather take the money, and I'll watch it, and I might get back into it, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, just taking profits is, um, is, 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 I think, the prudent thing to do at this point. Steph, we'll see you on the other side of the holiday weekend. Thanks so much for calling in. We so much appreciate it. Thank That's you. That's our Stephanie Link joining us. Let's get the headlines now from Contessa Brewer. And I mean, I'd be remiss not to ask you, Contessa, before you do that, your thoughts on Stephanie Link well, and when you know this space is, as well as anybody, you cover it. It's so interesting that she has decided to take the profits now from when, because just now is when we're starting to see Macau reopening and they're not they're still not back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, there you're seeing the stock today. But the other thing I want to point out is when is saying we're not content just with what we're doing in the United States and in China. 
we're also going to make a play on the Middle East. And they're really putting a lot of eggs in this basket of co-developing an integrated casino resort in the United Arab Emirates. So I think it's really interesting what happens, not just in three months when there may be COVID disruptions and things like that in China, yeah. but what happens over the next year or two. Yeah, sorry for throwing, th- sorry for throwing right. you in the producers a curveball, but when I saw that it was you, I was like, oh, I got I to get Contessa's take uh, on this. So please. I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about gaming. Let's talk about the news, too, right? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said if he's elected president, he would consider pardoning people involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. DeSantis, who officially announced his candidacy earlier this week, made comments on a conservative talk radio show. He claimed the Department of Justice and the FBI had been weaponized to unevenly punish people from, quote, disfavored groups. We'll watch that. New video shows the moment a school bus collided with a tanker truck in South Carolina with 36 people on board. 18 people, 17 of whom were children, were hurt in the accident Thursday. No word on their conditions. Uh, and, and we're waiting to hear an update from authorities there. Celine Dion has canceled 42 concerts because of ongoing health issues. The singer posted the news on her Instagram feed today. She was supposed to start the European leg of her tour in late August. Dion revealed last year that she had been diagnosed with stiff person syndrome. That's a rare progressive neurological disorder. We're wishing her the best. Scott, that's the update. Yeah, tough news. Uh, Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Up next, we have today's top calls, including a big upgrade for one of Jim's beaten down names. We'll give you the name, we'll give you the trade, and Jim will talk about it as he chuckles into the break next. All right, we're back on the half. A number of analyst calls out today that we wanted to highlight for you. Number one, Paramount. Upgraded Jim uh, to hold from sell. All right, so they got off the sell train there. Uh, to hold, price target still 14. No longer believe downside is that much greater than the upside. So there was a transaction announced last night where uh, a couple of partners, including Byron Trott, Michael Dell's uh, investment office, are investing in National Amusements, which is Sherry Redstone's, the largest uh, and the controlling shareholder in Paramount's uh, investment arm. So here's what's happening. Byron Trott, known to be or thought to be over the years as Warren Buffett's I mean, favorite banker. Be. Yeah, like the guy, the inside guy. A so, plus B equals. <laughs> and I'm thinking about, and you referenced this a month ago, right, that the Becky Quick uh, CNBC interview with Warren Buffett in which he lambasted the company but then chuckled and said, we'll see what happens, right? So we're seeing what is happening. Uh, Byron Trott, uh, Warren Buffett, Michael Dell, Sherry Redstone getting together. Look, there is value in this company, but the only way they're going to unlock it is, is in a transaction. Is that what you're gaming? I mean, is that what yes. you're playing for? And, it, yes. and if you own Paramount and you've listened to Jim, obviously talk about the stock for, for months, if not years, Is that is the it's either that or bust? Uh, I don't think it's bust, but there's no share price. I don't, you know what, I don't mean I, I so literal so as bust, but... L- let me phrase it this way, right? Before last earnings report, this was something where I thought they can go it on their own and really thrive. Mm-hmm. They can still go it on their own, but they're not going to really thrive. They need a partner with pockets. They need cost synergies. By the way, if they partnered with somebody who's already in the space, they could raise their ARPU. And there's a lot of reasons to do a transaction. And they've got throw weights, 60 million at Paramount Plus, 82 million at Pluto. Yep. I don't you know if you remember. Jim? Yeah, real quick. Um, I ended up buying this in 2020, and I paid about 16 bucks for it. I think the price that it's at right now, like, that's bust. You know, if you look at just the value of the content, which is actually quite valuable, like, this, you know, it's worth something. It's probably worth 15 bucks a share. 
Okay. Uh, next up, United Health and CVS initiated overweight at Piper Sandler. Uh, United Health 580 is the price target. CVS is 85. Seat you first on United Health, uh, which has been a, a disappointment this year after having a great 22. Yeah, we reduced it last September. It's been a long-term core holding for us. Uh, we reduced last year in September. We reduced again in early March this time, primarily due to cost. It's getting valuation and cost. It's getting pressure from rising medical costs, which is weighing on their cash flow. Well, the valuation has come down a little bit this year, Scott. It still trades at a premium to the healthcare sector. And we've been focused more on the pharma space this year where we're seeing better top line momentum. Names like Lilly and the like, so. Yeah. Amex reiterated overweight at Morgan Stanley, Jenny. Price target to 188. Right. So Amex actually had a really great quarter. And I think one of the things that, I mean, it's trading at 12 times earnings right now, which is a historical low. And that's part of Morgan Stanley's upgrade is saying, hey, this is too low a valuation. But I think one of the reasons it's trading down is because people are saying, oh, the consumer is weak. But you need to remember that Amex has a disproportionate amount of their sales coming from travel and leisure. And that remains very strong. It's a phenomenal company and it's undervalued. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli is here with his midday word. We're right back on the half. After this, S&P 500 is still holding above 4,200. Dow's good for 325. All right, you see the Dow there. There's the S&P. 4,204, Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. We're making another run. We are, yeah, fourth or fifth time uh, above that level, having closed there. Um, it's interesting to me that, um, you know, it's broadening out a little bit today. It's not just those few stocks, although clearly that's been the story of how uh, we remain at these levels for a while. It's, it seems like nobody's all that pleased about it. There's a little more suspicion than not, although uh, a sense of not wanting to be leaning too hard in negative direction if we do get uh, some kind of a debt deal. And then with uh, the momentum in, in the big market cap names is, uh, has been tough to fight. So uh, still think that we're, you know, we're working on a situation where we keep rolling ahead the expected downturn in the economy. It hasn't arrived on time. Repricing the Fed here, it's kind of interesting. The yield move, as you've been pointing out, uh, is something that ought to get uh, the attention at some level. It's interesting, though, but it, it hasn't, for the most part, gotten the attention of, of the stock market, even as Mester and, you know, her, her or the other folks on the, the Fed who continue to come on this network and speak elsewhere, too. And it sure sounds hawkish to me. Well, it sounds hawkish relative to perhaps what might have been expected and hoped for a few months ago. Uh, I don't think bumping rates up a quarter point, uh, maybe in June, maybe again in July. We're talking about small increments. And if it's happening against the backdrop of the credit crunch that did not happen immediately after uh, the banking issues of March and in the context of the consumer spending more than we expected, uh, I guess there's a little bit of an offset that uh, for now the market can live with. Yeah. All right. I'll see you in a couple hours. All right. uh, that's Mike Santoli. Also, don't forget a CNBC special tonight, Taking Stock with Mike Santoli, 6 o'clock Eastern time. Straight ahead, we have key earnings next week. We'll be watching. We'll set you up for it next. All right, let's talk some earnings next week. Got some names that the committee owns. Advanced Auto Parts Wednesday, right? Jenny, that's you, isn't it? Right. 
and we know the consumer is weakening, especially for those kinds of items. But Advanced Auto Parts has a higher economic resilience than, say, what you buy at five below. So what we saw this week was we saw Gap stores and Kohl's actually perform really, really well after earnings because expectations were so horrible and so low. I think this is the case with AAP. They trade at 13 times versus their peers O'Reilly and, Adv- and uh, AutoZone that trade north of 20 times. So there's just no expectations for them. Okay. They should be fine. Rob, we talked uh, Broadcom uh, earlier. It, it does report next week on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Well, the stock's acting like <clears throat> every other stock in this space. It's up 25% since we added it. I think you're going to see that they're going to be a beneficiary of the growth in the AI data centers. Um, as what they do is provide solutions that allow pro- faster processing capabilities, networking, and storage. And, you know, we're going to be looking for that. I think it might be a little early to see some of that. Um, the enthusiasm might be ahead of the actual results, but we're going to be paying attention. Jimmy, you, you used to own Salesforce, which is next week. And, you know, speaking of AI plays, how, uh, how are you thinking about this? It's up 32% in three months. Again, it's just one of these beneficiaries. Yeah, I'm, this one I'm not really enthused about getting back into. And I see what the price has done. But, you know, the conversation I was having you with at the beginning of the show about NVIDIA, that's something I can be more enthusiastic. And here's why. Salesforce, you know, this is a stock where the estimates are going up because of cost cutting. And yet throughout this year, uh, sales estimates have been going down. It's still fairly richly priced stock. I mean, maybe if we saw the sales estimates starting to go up, if they started a surprise on the top line, maybe I would get more interested. But I'm focused more on where do I enter NVIDIA. That's that's occupying my brain. Yeah, look at that. Look at that gain for uh, for CRM. Uh, What did I see? 60 percent plus year to date. Was that the number? Sure looked like that uh, up on the board. Yeah, 62 percent. Amazing. All right. We'll see what happens next week with that and uh, the others. Final trades are next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. I want to get to another upgrade today. There it is. Rio Tinto up 2.5%. Morgan Stanley upgrades that stock to overweight. Price target, 75 bucks. Nice upside from here, 25%. Jenny, you own that, yeah? Yeah, so this is in our international dividend income strategy, and it's really cool to look at it. What Morgan Stanley's crux of their argument is, is saying that Rio right now is trading as if iron ore is $60. And meanwhile, iron ore under 75, the high cost producers stop producing. So they're saying it's like really overly discounting that. If Morgan Stanley is right, which we think they are, and it trades to 75, fantastic. But in the meantime, you're getting a huge dividend yield. It's got a 7.2% yield. We've owned it since 2016, paid $47. We've already collected $33 of dividends. So like just the dividends, you're making a ton of money because they pay all their cash to the shareholders. But there should be upside because it's undervalued. Okay. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, Let's remind you what's coming up on Closing Bell before we leave you off for the holiday weekend. We have a great show coming up. Tom Lee is going to join us right as the S&P tries to close above 4,200. Dow's on pace to break its five-day losing streak. What a week it's been for tech. Fundstrat told you beginning of the year, get on the mega cap train. So we're going to see what he thinks now. Cameron Dawson, Eric Jackson joining us too. Speaking of Cameron Dawson and New Edge, Rob Seachin, why don't you give us the first final trade? Yeah, KLAC, we're going to stick with this AI chip gold rush. This is a great way to play at 30% free cash flow margins, 44% return on invested capital, double the industry average, great way to play it. 
Okay. I'm DEA. That's got to be you, right? That's this me. government REIT. Of it sorts, is, right? Yeah, and that's it what is, it is. It is, and it is the opposite of an AI play. But it's interesting. Because, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> you may remember, Scott, about a month ago, I suggested this. I had spoken mm -hmm. to the management, and they said the, this share price is insane. It's killing us. It's way undervalued. Um, and um, and so here we are, back at the same share price. When I added to it last year, why do I think it's down so much? I suspect it's misunderstood because of the debt ceiling debate. People maybe maybe were worrying, oh, maybe they won't collect their rents. I think that's a misunderstanding. So you get to buy it again here now. You get an 8% yield. They have a phenomenal, high barrier to entry government building prop, uh, okay. portfolio. Well, there you go. Uh, nice move. Farmer Jim. Delta Airlines, or really all the airlines, maybe with the exception of Love Southwest. The passenger counts at TSA are, are through the roof. Um, ticket prices we know are high. The estimates for these stocks have been going up, and they've gotten no love. All right. Good stuff. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.